0: Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi, I'm a GP and the medical editor of Health Ed. Welcome to our unique podcast series, now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien, I'm an endocrinologist and I'm going to talk to you today about the prevention and management of diabetic retinopathy, a very important and often neglected problem. About one in three people with diabetes will develop uh, some degree of diabetic retinopathy. In fact, in type 2 diabetes, it's as many as three in five patients. And of these, about one in three will actually develop vision-threatening retinopathy. So it is something that we need to be aware of, we need to screen for, and we need to do what we can to actually prevent progression. Risk factors, you all know that glycemic control is very important. And if you look at that graph there on the right, you can see uh, the relationship between HbA1c and diabetic retinopathy. It's quite steep, particularly at high HbA1c levels. But there are other things that are important. Control of other risk factors such as blood pressure and blood lipids can certainly play a part in the development of diabetic retinopathy. And so we need to manage these well. What is diabetic retinopathy? It's a microvascular disorder where the capillaries in the retina become damaged. They can become uh, leaky. Uh, The the retinal microvascular can then be subject to injury from hypertension. Uh, And it tends to be a progressive disease. So it can progress to vision impairment and even blindness in its later stages. I think you'll probably be aware there are three main classifications. That is non-proliferative retinopathy, proliferative retinopathy, and something called macular edema, which is caused by the leakiness of the vessels in the macular region. As I said, it is a progressive disease. Uh, We see, first of all, microaneurysms. They're pretty common in most people with diabetes, uh, if they've had diabetes for a long time. But these can then develop to dot and blot hemorrhages, uh, to other abnormalities, cotton wool spots, and and then eventually we get this proliferation of new vessels, uh, neovascularization, hemorrhages. And that is the stage which is quite vision threatening. But the other thing that can threaten vision is macular edema. And that can actually occur really at any stage uh, in this process. So we need to be uh, mindful of this and be screening for it. The problem is that early in diabetes, there are no uh, symptoms that you've got diabetic retinopathy. Um, We really... vision stays normal, people do not know that they are developing problems, but later on, things like floaters, blurred vision, uh, perhaps uh, changes in colour vision, those sort of things can be a sign, but gosh, you would hope that we would have identified the problem uh, long before these. symptoms develop and it has to be a comprehensive eye examination and so that's why the most important message i can give you today about diabetic retinopathy is the importance of screening it's absolutely fundamental what's the recommendation well most guidelines suggest that Retinopathy is screened for at the diagnosis of diabetes, and then usually every two years. But if there are people who are regarded as high risk, that might mean they've got a lot of risk factors. In Australia, Indigenous Australians are generally regarded as high risk, and and therefore it's recommended that that they have uh, annual Uh, tests. If somebody's got established retinopathy, then at least annually, but possibly even more frequently as determined by uh, the specialist. Now it's not good enough just to get a a, a direct ophthalmoscope and look in the eye. We need to have proper eye examinations done by people who are expert in the area, generally with either retinal cameras uh, or with things like slit lamps that that optometrists or uh, ophthalmologists use. It is a problem because a lot of people in Australia are not having regular eye examinations. You can see on these pie charts that if you look at the right one, that's the non-indigenous population, still about one in five people are not having uh, regular eye checks. Uh, And in fact, uh, you can see that uh, quite a large proportion, that light blue zone, people that have never had an eye check. It's much worse in the indigenous population where we've got uh, almost a half of people not having adequate eye checks. And uh, so uh, I, I think, you know, awareness is important. We really need to do as much as we can to encourage our patients to get tested. And there is a very good program in Australia called the KeepSight Program. It's something that's been developed by Diabetes Australia in partnership with uh, other groups, and you can actually register your patients into this KeepSight program. And then the National uh, Diabetes Supply Scheme uh, will administer this, this program and actually remind patients that they need to uh, go and have an eye check. You can just, you can just Google uh, KeepSight, uh, you can register, you can register your patients. And I think this is a fabulous result because it's very easy to forget exactly when the last eye check was done. And the KeepSight program ensures that people are reminded and go and get their eye checks um there are things that general practitioners uh, and other specialists can do. And one of them, if you have the resources, is actually to have a screening program in your own practice. And this is an interesting study that was done uh, in Australia. It was uh, general practice and uh, GPs and practice nurses. They used in-house diabetic retinopathy screening. So they actually had a a retinal camera. These don't have to be the super expensive uh, $50,000 types. I'll show you an example in a moment. And then they had support. So once they'd taken photos, there were ophthalmologists backing them up who could be consulted uh, if there were any questions about it. And there was uh, in the first year, there were quarterly video conferences as well. And so what they did in the study is some of the practices did this uh, retinal screening, and others did not. This is a camera that uh, it can be used. This is, uh, a, I think, it's it's about five or six thousand dollars. It, it, it's certainly a lot cheaper than the very um, uh, sophisticated and large machines that ophthalmologists uh, and a lot of optometrists have. Um, it's non midriatic so you don't have to put drops in the eye. And with good training, you can get very good quality photos with with this. Now. The, the outcome was pretty spectacular. In the practices where they actually had the screening outcome, uh, the, the intervention, a screening outcomes were recorded 100% of uh, the, the patients. In the control practices, only a third had in the notes uh, the outcome of uh, the, the screening. Mild to moderate diabetic retinopathy was diagnosed almost twice as much in the intervention practices as in the others, 9% versus 5%. So that means, presumably, that in those control practices, there were in quite a number of patients with. Uh, uh, retinopathy who were not being picked up. And the follow-up was also much better. You can see re-screening at 12 months, 95% of the intervention practices did that versus only 29% of the control practices. So I think uh, this is something that's ideal, particularly uh, those of you that are in r- rural remote areas where maybe you don't have an optometrist or an ophthalmologist uh, available for screening. This is the, the sort of thing with, with some investment that can be done. And uh, my understanding is that there's actually a Medicare item number for the r- retinopathy screening. So um, it, it, it is something that you can actually get paid to do and recoup the costs of the camera. Now, what is the role of the GP and the other specialists in preventing or slowing the progression of diabetic retinopathy? One of the very important things is effective risk factor management. Um, the guidelines recommend optimizing glycemic control. I'm sure you would have seen uh, ophthalmologists particularly will write back and say this patient's control needs to be improved, they've got uh, retinopathy developing and that's absolutely true. Good glycemic control is absolutely essential in slowing retinopathy. The other thing though that can help is uh, optimizing blood pressure. I've got a question mark next to that because it's not absolutely clear that if somebody's got existing retinopathy that really good blood blood pressure control uh, can stop it progressing. Certainly it seems that it can slow the, uh, the, the development of uh, diabetic retinopathy and obviously it's simply good medicine anyway in these people with diabetes. Uh, we certainly want to be aiming for uh, uh, Good uh, blood pressures. I would say, you know, in the office, certainly less than 140 over 80, and ideally probably 130 70. So um, that is really important. And then there is uh, also lipid-lowering medications. So many, many of your patients are going to be on statins, for example, to reduce macrovascular complications. And and it's certainly uh, important. Um, But I'm going to also show you that there is another lipid-lowering drug, fenofibrate, that seems to have uh, a particular role in diabetic uh, retinopathy. And just remember um, the importance of good glycemic control must be emphasized with the patients. And and you don't want to scare them, but you need to tell them that really uh, they need to do what they can to improve glycemic control because it's very important in the progression of retinopathy. So here's what we can do, as I said, manage modifiable risk factors, uh, and we can consider um, systemic treatments uh, such as fenofibrate. And I'm going to show you the evidence uh, that fenofibrate has for preventing uh, the progression of diabetic retinopathy. As mentioned before, that regular screening, ongoing specialist referral, very important. Uh, And if the disease is severe, then there are other things that will be undertaken by the ophthalmologist, things like laser therapy for uh, proliferative retinopathy, for macular edema, in particular, the uh, uh, anti-vascular endothelial growth factor agents that are injected into the eye. They will also uh, slow the uh, development of the new vessels, but they only seem to work as long as you're injecting them. And so generally, the proliferative retinopathy is treated by laser, which gives a a permanent fix, and macular edema by uh, anti-VEGFs. But this is absolutely something that would be decided by the specialist. In very severe cases, particularly if there's been a hemorrhage and the the vitreous, that jelly behind the eyes is is filled with with blood, it is sometimes necessary to remove that, to actually do a vitrectomy, uh, and sometimes steroids are used. But these are all highly specialist things. I think if you look on the left side of this, what are we doing as non-ophthalmologists? It really is controlling those risk factors, glycemic control, blood pressure, and thinking about fenofibrate. So I'd like to share with you some evidence from a study I was involved with, the FEEL study, and also another study, the ACCORD study. Now, these were studies with fenofibrate. Looking at its effect on uh, lowering lipids and, and the reduction of cardiovascular disease. But both of these trials also had a, a diabetic eye substudy uh, attached to them. And the results were really very interesting. So, FEAL was a large trial, it was about almost 10,000 people with type 2 diabetes. They were randomized either to placebo or fenofibrate 200 milligrams. That was the, the, the form that was available at the time of the study. Uh, now we actually have the 145 five milligram form and and they're absolutely equivalent in terms of the, the dosage Um, They were randomized and they were followed for many years. Now, I won't go into the cardiovascular side of things, but the retinopathy was very interesting. So using that very hard endpoint of requirement for retinal laser therapy, there was a 31% reduction. You can see uh, really the lines start to diverge about the first year uh, uh, retinopathy, obviously uh, taking some uh, time to develop. uh, And then we see uh, that constant improvement in the people on fenofibrate versus the placebo. If we look at multiple uh, uh, courses of laser therapy, you can see that uh, the the reduction was even greater. So overall, a 37% reduction in the need for laser therapy. Now, we generally do say that, the role of fenofibrate is particularly in the early forms of retinopathy but it is interesting these people that have had already had one laser course it did seem that their risk for multiple laser courses was reduced suggesting that there may still be a role for fenofibrate even in the later stages of uh, diabetic retinopathy but I think my message today is we want to try and introduce these treatments much early we want to prevent people ever from getting to the stage where they're going to need to have laser therapy. So the other study was called the Accord study. Now, that was a, a study to see if very intensive glycemic control would reduce cardiovascular disease. But it also had a sub-study which used a combination of phenofibrate with simvastatin. This is important because most of the time we're using fibrates. Uh, we we would be using them on top of statins, because uh, most of high-risk diabetic patients would already be on a statin. Uh, And then there was this uh, eye sub-study that went on. It had various endpoints, and they used fundus photographs uh, to assess it. And what they found in that study was, perhaps not surprisingly, there was a reduction of 33% in the risk of retinopathy with good glycemic control. But there was a 40% reduction with fenofibrate. Interestingly, blood pressure control in this study was, was not effective. And I think it's interesting if you look at the group that, so this was a, a sort of multifactorial design. So you had some people with really good control who also got fenofibrate. You had some people with poor control, no fenofibrate, and combinations of the two. And actually, if you look at the difference between those that got good glycemic control and fenofibrate versus poor glycemic or standard glycemic control and no fenofibrate, you can see the, the progression of retinopathy. 13.4% in the placebo group, 53 So these things both work together to reduce the progression of diabetic retinopathy. There has been a a meta-analysis of these two studies, including another one called the lipids and diabetes study, which was a much smaller study. And the meta-analysis really bears out what I've shown you in the individual trials, uh, excluding the first year, because there didn't seem to be much action there. But after the first year, we're seeing these substantial reductions, and overall, about a 30% reduction in progression of diabetic retinopathy, so really very useful indeed. The other thing we found both in field and in accord was that the people that seemed to benefit were those that had pre-existing retinopathy. So you can see here on the right side, the group that had diabetic retinopathy at baseline in accord had a 50% reduction in progression versus 40% for the population overall. But in fact, there was no benefit seen in the people with no retinopathy at baseline. That probably simply reflects the fact that it takes a long time to develop. But um, uh, the, the message is clear, uh, really, fenofibrators is particularly for those people who have early diabetic retinopathy. The problem's common. In field, 20% with five-year duration of, of diabetes, and accord, 50% with 10-year duration. In both studies, retinopathy was reduced 35 to 40%. And here's a really important point. In both studies, the effect was seen equally in dyslipidemic and non dyslipidemic patients. So it doesn't matter if someone's got high triglycerides, low HDL, whatever, or they've got normal lipids, the fenofibrate still was effective in slowing the progression of retinopathy. That translates to a pretty good uh, cost-benefit analysis. I mean, to avoid uh, the first laser in people that have got existing retinopathy, we only needed to treat 17 people uh, and to Uh, avoid a two-step progression uh, on the scale that ophthalmologists use to assess retinopathy, we only had to treat nine people. Now it was much uh, higher numbers if with no known eye disease, uh, number needed to treat was 90. So again, uh, the message is this is really for people that have got uh, existing retinopathy, uh, not for people that have got completely normal retinas. There's some real world observations that I think are quite interesting. So this was a study uh, published recently from Taiwan. It was a large, they, they have a very good uh, database there. And they interrogated initially files of nearly 900,000 people to come uh, up with 32,000 people with diet, type two diabetes who did not have any prior history of retinopathy or laser treatment and then they looked at the uh, from an index date and then they followed uh, the the records of these people throughout they found that 2500 of them were using fenofibrate produ- presumably to reduce triglycerides uh, to treat lipids and there were 29 nearly 30,000 that were non-users and when they looked at the uh, records they found over the the time of that study period uh, the percent that had a retinopathy event were 27.48 in the um, no and 19. So it was a 41% reduction in the the actual need for laser treatment, about a 41% reduction. So actually really similar. And when you adjusted for other diabetic risk factors, it was a 33% reduction. So although this is a real-world study, the actual magnitude of the benefit is very similar to what was seen in the randomized trials. This is uh, another database study from the US that was published in uh, this year in 2022 uh, and you can see proliferative uh, diabetic retinopathy uh, looking at, with a multivariate analysis was reduced 24% in people using fenofibrate versus those not using fenofibrate. Now one always has to be a little bit careful about these real world database studies but I think it is very reassuring that When we do look at the data in the real world, it does seem to match fairly closely what we see in the clinical trials. This has been incorporated into guidelines and these are the RACGP guidelines in Australia and it mentions that patients who randomised to fenofibrate had a significant uh, reduction in retinopathy and need for laser and in fact the TGA in Australia has approved the use of fenofibrate for the treatment of diabetic retinopathy uh, it's patient, and, and they do recommend in the guidelines its use in patients with diabetes with evidence of retinopathy should now be considered. The benefits were uh, um, not dependent on the patient having dyslipidemia, so a really important point. And I should actually just mention that the only, interestingly, it is the Lipidil brand that has the indication for treatment of retinopathy in Australia, not not any of the other ones. So that's uh, an interesting uh, technical point. But this is now in the guidelines, and I think it's something that you should consider uh, in your patients that have got some degree of retinopathy with type 2 diabetes. We don't know about type 1 diabetes yet. I'm actually involved in a trial looking at fenofibrate in type 1 diabetes, but for the time being, All of this data that I've been showing you uh, is relevant to people with type 2 diabetes, which, of course, is the, the bulk of people that we see with diabetes. Well, what are the potential mechanisms of action? Phenofibrate's a very complicated uh, molecule, and it has all sorts of uh, activities. It has anti-inflammatory effects. It has anti-angiogenic effects. It stops cell death. It has anti-apoptoptic effects. And of course, it has the effects that we're more familiar with, the, the effects on lipids, so a decreasing triglyceride, increasing HDL, etc. And it also has some antioxidant effects. And I think it's particularly, if you look in that bottom right-hand uh, corner, anti-angiogenic activities. We inject into the eyes of people with bad diabetic retinopathy, we inject anti-VEGF agents. Could this be an anti-VEGF agent? So this was a study done in, in uh, mice with diabetes. And what they did is inject nanoparticles with fenofibrate. And this is actually directly into the eye, so no systemic effects. You can see that there was this big increase in the the, uh, phenofibrate or phenofibric acid, which is a metabolite inside the eye, persisted for quite a long time. When they looked at and I think particularly what's interesting is the left-hand panel there, which is the vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF. You can see the white bar of normal animals. The diabetic animals, the black and blue, have that high level of VEGF. And then the ones treated with the fenofibrate, that level was brought right back down. On the right side, we have an adhesion molecule also showing similar sort of effects. Uh, and If we look at uh, the um, vascular permeability, how leaky the capillaries were in the eyes of these uh, animals, you can see that the far right panel, the fenofibrate treated ones, it had come right back to normal. So I think this is some evidence of how fenofibrate might be working. Now, how long should we treat? Well, there was a good study done after the Accord trial finished. They continued to follow the patients in a study called the Accordion eye trial. Uh, and uh, they followed them for another four years. At that stage, they were no longer taking the finifibrate. The intensive glycemic control had slackened off. And they wanted to see, was the effect that was seen in the study are still observed four years later, even though they weren't taking the drug. And interesting, if you look at the left-hand panel there, glycemic therapy, that was still of benefit. In other words, good control early on led to benefits later. We actually know that from a number of other trials, that if you really control blood glucose very early on, the, the rate of complications is reduced for years and years later, even after the trials finished. It was not the same for the fenofibrate therapy in the yellow bars there you can see that the, the effect did not persist. The message is very important. We need to, if we're going to use fenofibrate, uh, we need to continue it to get its effect. And indeed if it is working through anti-VEGF effects amongst other things, that's not dissimilar to the eye injections which generally need to be continued to show benefit. Uh, the, the the statin and fenofibrate people sometimes get a bit worried, but fenofibrate does not interact with statins in the same way as other fibrates. The the data in that study was very safe. There were no cases of uh, 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 high cases of muscle enzyme problems with the combination versus the the drug alone. Liver function also very similar. What we did see is a rise in creatinine. You can see the creatinine goes from eighty two to ninety seven in the fenofibrate group. Uh, 82 to 92 in the simvastatin group. Now, we looked at this in the field study. And in fact, sphenofibrate increases creatinine by a non-GFR mechanism. It actually doesn't affect GFR. So the way we designed the, the field study was that there was a six week run in where all of the patients, uh, all of the subjects in the trial got fenofibrate. Look at the creatinine, it goes up quite sharply. Then they were randomized to either continue fenofibrate or go to placebo. And the placebo group, the, the, the creatinine immediately went back down but drifted up over time. At the end of the study, we withdrew the fenofibrate, and you can see that in fact, the group that got the fenofibrate end up with a lower creatinine, i.e. a better GFR at the end of the study. And in fact, we found that the fenofibrate group declined their GFR 1.9 mils per minute. Over the time, the placebo group had a decline of 6.9 mils per minute. So there was actually renal protection seen with fenofibrate, So fascinating stuff, but I can reassure you if the creatinine goes up in your patient and the GFR, the EGFR drops down, do not be worried. It is a normal effect of phenofibrate therapy. So in conclusion, phenofibrate, very interesting uh, uh, compound, very interesting drug, has specific molecular actions which may prevent microvascular complications, but particularly diabetic retinopathy. In these two large studies, field and accord, phenofibrate markedly reduced the need for retinal laser therapy and reduced the progression of retinopathy. The reduction in risk, very important point. The reduction risk was similar in patients with and without dyslipidemia. And in people with existing retinopathy, the number needed to treat to prevent progression was very low, nine in the field study, making this a very cost-effective therapy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.